In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so I wanted to start this morning with just a little bit of honesty. Before my preparation for today's sermon, I had never thought this much or this long about the Ascension. And it's not that I thought the Ascension was unimportant. I guess the Ascension just doesn't stand out like the other parts of the Gospel. And so it's kind of easy to overlook it. But this got me to thinking. I wondered if other people were having the same problem with the Ascension I was having. Were there others who believe with their whole heart that the Ascension is a cornerstone of Christian belief, but like me, they kind of skipped over it because they just weren't sure what to do with it. So I began asking around, and, and i got to admit, guys, I was kind of shocked by some of the answers that I heard. I asked people a few questions about the Ascension. First, I asked, how important is a belief in the Ascension? And every person that I asked the question to said they believed in the Ascension, that it was a cornerstone of the Christian faith. But then I asked them this follow-up question. How often is the Ascension discussed in your churches? And without exception, every one of them replied something to the effect, barely if ever. Not one person was able to recall a single sermon or a Sunday school lesson spent on the Ascension. It seemed that when it came to the Ascension, there was virtually zero conversation. It was like the Ascension was nothing more than just a supporting character, some sort of background extra in the gospel story that didn't really have to be there. The Ascension was like a character that you're familiar with, but it was overshadowed by larger, more famous characters. You know these characters. Christmas, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. These are the real stars. The incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection are the church's bread and butter. These are the main attractions. We know these characters well. We know exactly how to think and speak about them. But the ascension? That's too obscure. Probably just some theology stuff for the nerds to study. But besides that, no one really knows what to do with it anyway. What do we do with the ascension? But here's why dismissing the ascension, failing to understand the ascension, is such a grievous error. The Ascension just happens to be a core belief of the church. The Ascension isn't some weirdo fringe teaching you find in an airport devotional. No, whether we look in the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed, we see a codified belief in the Ascension. It's recorded with what words? He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We'll pronounce this as a part of our faith together in mere moments. So we can be under no false illusion the ascension is an irreplaceable part of the Christian belief. It's an irreplaceable part of God's redemption of the world. But if it's such a foundational belief, why don't we have more to say about it? Why do most find it so difficult to explain how the ascension fits with the other parts of the gospel story? So, this morning I want to address those questions as best I can. I want to show that the Ascension isn't just some small supporting role in the drama of God's salvation. And I want to do that by doing two main things. First, I want to try to zoom out and see God's redemptive plan as a whole. I want us to zoom out and see that salvation is kind of like a chain. A chain where each link is connected to and dependent upon the others. And second, with the whole picture of salvation in place... I want to try to explain the link of the ascension and the pivotal role that it plays. So let's start by turning to our gospel text, John chapter 17, starting in the 20th verse. 
<clears throat> now, in order to really zoom out and see God's plan of redemption, we need to ask a few very, very basic questions. First question, why did God create the world? Second, what in the world went wrong with the world? Third, how did God put the world right again? How did God save a broken world? So first question, why did God create the world? Well, God created the heavens and earth with a purpose in mind, with a desire in his heart. God's desire was to share himself, to share his very life with the world he made. And the desire of God to share himself, to give himself, reached its epic apex when God created man in his own image. Now, God didn't have to create humanity in this way. He could have created us like the animals or the angels, but he didn't. Instead, God bestowed upon humanity his very image and likeness. He made us in his own image because he wished to know us and to be known by us in a deeply intimate way. In all of creation, nothing else has this distinction. Nothing else in the whole universe bears the image of God like humanity. Nothing bears the image of God like we do. But, as you well know, man made in the image of God rebelled against God still. We turned away from God and we went our own way. And in doing so, we dissolved our union from God. Humanity ripped itself from the very foundation we were built upon. We renounced the purpose of why we existed in the first place. Creation itself was now fractured and broken from top to bottom, and you and I were the cause of it. The earth, which God gave to us as a gift, now fought back against us with thorns and thistles. Heaven and earth, joined together by God himself, was torn asunder. Man and woman, the very apex of beauty found in God's creation, creatures made by God to love and complement one another, now looked upon each other with suspicion and malice. All that God had made to be joined together was now in a state of divorce, a state of disunion. In humanity, those who bore the very image of God himself were the ones that did it. So what does God do with this mess? How would God rejoin everything torn apart in the fall? All throughout the Old Testament, you hear whispers and rumblings. God had a plan to make the world whole again by the coming of the one they called Messiah. And this Messiah would have the power to mend everything that was torn apart. The Messiah would reunite all that had been divided. And for century after century, this broken and lost world waited in anticipation. And then, in the most unlikely of places it happened, the Messiah appeared. In a town called Bethlehem, a baby was born. He was the son of a a lady named Mary. But this child was also the eternal son of the Father. This child was fully human, absolutely. But this child was also the Ancient of Days. Very God of very God. And he was laying in a manger as plain as day. A living, breathing God-man. This is the first link in the chain of salvation, the incarnation. In the incarnation, God descends from heaven. He's born into this world, very man and very God. In the incarnation, God was taking the most broken area of this world and piecing it back together. In his very body, 
God was reuniting humanity and divinity. He was reuniting his nature back to ours. The redemption of the entire universe begins with Christmas. In the incarnation, God descended to earth in order to mend what was broken. But God desired to mend all that was broken, and that meant he would descend further still. Some 33 years after his birth, on a Friday afternoon, Jesus bore the world and descended into the very bottom of a broken and fractured creation. Jesus descended into the very bottom, the very outer edges of a world that was divided by sin. Jesus bore the sinful world in his body and descended into death itself. The crucifixion and the death of Jesus are the second link in the chain of salvation. A link where God himself dies. And what no one could have guessed, what what no one could have seen coming, God's intention all along was to die. And here's why. By taking every sin By swallowing up every bit of brokenness and possessing it in his very body, nothing was left outside of the authority of Jesus to forgive. By descending to the very bottom of a disjointed world, by going into death itself, there was nothing left fractured in the fall that Jesus had not confronted. In and through the cross, Jesus confronts every sin and even death itself. And now... After that confrontation, Jesus has all authority to forgive and redeem everything in need of redemption. The death of Jesus on the cross is irreplaceable. His descent into death, an absolute necessity. But the cross, for as beautiful as it is, is not the end of the story. You know as well as I that the death of Jesus is only good news if he doesn't stay dead. So if our understanding of salvation stopped here, if the church only talked about the incarnation and the crucifixion, and we left everything out that came after, what kind of news do we have? The Apostle Paul tells us exactly what kind of faith we have if you stop at the cross. Paul says, if Christ be not raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you were still in your sins. The incarnation The crucifixion and the resurrection are events that are woven together. You can't have one and not the others. Each event needs the other. It's true that Christ died for your sins. But before he could die for your sins, he had to be born into the sinful world that needed redeeming. The crucifixion is not possible without the incarnation. Good Friday needs Christmas. But Good Friday isn't good at all without Easter. The incarnation is directed towards the crucifixion, but the crucifixion is fulfilled in the resurrection. You can't talk about one without implying the others. They each need one another in order to understand them. Now, we don't know each other that well, so you may not know this about me, but analogies help me think. I will use an analogy, and in that analogy, I'll use another one. And it messes people up sometimes. I I apologize for that. When I try to explain something as complicated as the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection, and I try to explain how they're interrelated to one another, I've found what I think is a helpful picture. The picture is an unzipped jacket. Now, trust me, just hang in there just for a second. So imagine with me an unzipped jacket. We've all seen one of those. 
You have two separated halves of the jacket, but they're clearly made to be joined together. But until they're rejoined, they remain split up. This is like a picture of what the fall did. Things were made to be together, but now they're split up and separated. Now imagine you want to join the two sides of this jacket back together. What do you need to join two separated sides of a jacket? You need a zipper. At the very top of one side of this jacket is a zipper, and the zipper begins coming down one side of the jacket. This is kind of like the incarnation, the descent of the one who could make things whole again. But in order for the zipper to make these two halves whole, it can't go halfway down the jacket, right? No, it has to go all the way to the bottom of the jacket. This is like the crucifixion and death of Jesus, the descent of Jesus to the absolute bottom of a broken and fractured creation. And it's here at the bottom that both halves of the once fractured jacket are now reconnected in the zipper. But the zipper doesn't stay at the bottom, does it? No, the zipper goes down in order to come up. And when the zipper rises from the bottom, it leaves in its wake the reunion of each side. The raising of the zipper from the bottom of the jacket is like the resurrection. And it's here with the resurrection that we have the third link in the chain of salvation. But it's also here at the resurrection of Christ on this pivotal third link in the chain that my experience shows most churches seem to stop the story. For many Christians, the resurrection of Jesus seems to be the last chapter of how God redeems the world. But guys, there's one major problem. There's a whole lot of story after Easter. After his resurrection, Jesus was on earth for 40 days. He spent most of his time teaching and explaining to the disciples everything that had happened. They were really confused. And then on the 40th day, Jesus told his disciples something that really confused them. Jesus told them that he was returning to the Father and that they should wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, whatever that was. But then before their very eyes, Jesus was lifted up, raised into the clouds, and was gone. Just like that, the ascension had happened. Now, how do we make sense of something like the ascension? Well, if you remember the jacket analogy, the resurrection is when the zipper is raised from the bottom. The ascension is when the zipper goes all the way to the top. The ascension is when the whole jacket Everything from the top to the bottom have been reunited in and by the zipper. The ascension is when all things from the highest throne of heaven to the lowest place of death and despair have been reunited in the very body of Jesus himself. This is why the essential is such a crucial part of what we call salvation. This is why the ascension is the fourth link in that chain. The ascension is the fulfillment of every single thing which had come before. In the incarnation of God, God that was spirit descends from heaven and inhabits the physical world. God came to earth. But in the ascension, this happens in reverse. The physical ascends and inhabits the spiritual. Jesus Christ a real, live, living, breathing human being walked into heaven that day. And in the resurrected and ascended Jesus, we have a final proof that the physical and the spiritual aren't opposites. They're not at odds with one another. No, actually, the spiritual and the physical can inhabit one another because the spiritual and the physical are made by God to be with 
one another. Humanity is able to receive divinity because God made us with the capacity to receive him. And in the incarnate, crucified, resurrected, and ascended Jesus, humanity is received into the divine life itself. On this very day as we speak, there sits on a throne in heaven a real, enfleshed human. And he has all power and authority over heaven and earth. The high priestly prayer of Jesus recorded in John's gospel. It's a prayer of intercession for you and I. But guys, Jesus no longer intercedes for you and I from a garden in Judea. No. His intercession for us happens while being seated at the right hand of the Father. The Son intercedes for humanity as a real, live human. He intercedes for humanity in heaven, where He sits enthroned as God. The ascension of Jesus is irreplaceable because the ascension is the moment when everything that was joined in the incarnation, everything that was paid for in the crucifixion, everything that was won in the resurrection, Everything that Christ took into himself was now taken by Christ into heaven, into the very life of God himself. You can see this just past your gospel text. And forgive me, we're going to go just past our gospel text today, starting in John 17, verse 23. I'll read it to you. Don't worry about turning. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, And love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is Christ's high priestly prayer, and it's beautiful. It's extremely complex, and there's a thousand things we could say about it. There's a thousand sermons that could be preached here. But I want to focus on just one thing, the one thing that seems to be the beating heart of both the Father and the Son. You see... The heart of God isn't to love you like a master loves a servant. It's not to love you like a king loves a loyal servant. No. John 17 seems to suggest an altogether different kind of love. Back in verse 26, it says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Guys, do you hear that? It is the desire of God the Father that you be as close to his heart as Jesus his Son is. It is the desire of God the Father that the Son himself be found in you. Now, this is news so great, I don't even know what to do with it. I can't even really take that in. But can I tell you? This is the kind of news that should make us ask a few questions. Here's one. How is Christ in me if Christ is in heaven? Today was all about Jesus ascending into heaven and being seated at the right hand of the Father, right? So how is Christ in our hearts 
yet Christ is on a throne in heaven. How is the love of God, the redeeming life of Jesus Christ, to be found in you and I if Christ is in a different realm altogether? How do you and I receive the resurrected life of Jesus? <laughs> the sheer weight of these questions should lead to one inescapable conclusion. For as beautiful as the ascension of Christ is, it's not the end of the story either. No, there's still another link in the chain of salvation we've yet to discuss. A link where everything that Christ has, everything that Christ is, everything that Christ wishes to give to you and I is given to you and I. And you know what it is. There's no real spoilers or cliffhangers in the church. It's Pentecost. Of course I'm talking about that. Next week, I want to explore with you just how crucial a role Pentecost plays in the redemption of the world. But let's pause here. And over the next week, I want you to really think about what we've talked about this morning. I hope you've seen the links in this chain and you've understood them and I've made some sense. The incarnation is directed towards the crucifixion. The crucifixion is the fulfillment of the resurrection. The resurrection culminates in the ascension and the ascension expects Pentecost. Praise God that we live in a story that is this fantastic, that is this true, this beautiful. Praise God that the story of Jesus isn't just something for you to read about and hear. The story of Jesus can be played out in you as well. Praise God that he came for people such as us, people in desperate need of his life. Praise God that he will return for people such as us. Praise God that he came for us, that he will return for us, for his coming and for his coming again. Amen.